Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... So the idea here is if that's the kind of funding that's out there, we're not getting it. And then the traditional lending is not providing it. We definitely need to see more venture funds being developed and launched by Indigenous people. But when you look at the landscape, 99% of most entrepreneurs aren't ever going to activate venture. What are we creating and who are we creating it for? Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 443 of Impact Boom. My name is Sarah, and I'm passionate about visioning, empowering, and contributing to positive regenerative heart and soul-led initiatives locally and globally. Today, we are speaking with Vanessa Roanhorse. Vanessa is an inclusive, solutions-driven problem solver committed to liberating all peoples and delivering impactful mechanisms for social, environmental and economic change. She launched Roanhorse Consulting in 2016, an Indigenous-led think tank Roanhorse Consulting co-designs wealth and power building efforts that directly invest in our leaders, support meaningful data collection that are informed by Indigenous research approaches and help build thoughtful community-led projects that enforce values that put people at the centre. Vanessa got her management chops working for seven years in Chicago-based non-for-profit, the Delta Institute, and she now sits on numerous boards and serves as an advisor to Decolonizing Wealth, Angels of Impact Fund, Gender Smarts Jedi Working Group, and Social Venture Circle's Restorative Investing Task Force. She's one of eight co-founders of Native Women Lead, an organisation dedicated to growing Native women into positions of leadership and business. And Vanessa is Dine, a Navajo citizen and resides on Tiwa Territory in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Vanessa, so great to have you here. Thank you for making the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. To start off, could you please share a bit more about your background and what it is that's led you to where you are right at this moment? <laughs> uh, oh, good. I, I uh, <laughs> Secret is like being able to talk about how I got here in a concise way. I'll start with, you know, Yat uh, my name is Vanessa Roanhorse. I am Navajo Dine from the Navajo Nation, grew up on the nation, but currently live here on Tewa lands in Albuquerque, New Mexico right now. I have a twin sister who co-runs Roanhorse Consulting with me, the firm I started in 2016. I live here with my partner and our nine-year-old who as of today is my height and wearing my shoe size. <laughs> and so that's been a wild experience to see my baby grow up. <clears throat> the journey to where I'm at today probably like most people's journey and for me as an Indigenous person, an Indigenous woman, 
the journey here was not clear, was not a straight line, was definitely not in the cards. You know, I left home when I was young and went to an all-girls boarding school on the East Coast. From there, I moved from city to city. I really wanted to work in the film industry. Wasn't Res Dogs ready? You know, it just wasn't a time in which they were looking to hire folks like me with my background. And so I sort of found my way to Chicago where I worked for a sustainable non-for-profit and really for the first time in my life was in a trusted environment. Didn't have the background. I'm a college dropout. The thing I tell people is I'm an excellent learner, terrible student. I do not like to be told what to do, which is probably continues to be part of my story today. But in Chicago, where I lived for 15 years, I met my partner. It's where I got to really play in the space around how do communities define wealth? How are communities and community leaders activating their wisdom to solve very local challenges or challenges that they were facing that no matter how much money or how much expertise you had does not make up for that level of lived experience and wisdom and knowledge that comes from a place and comes from people who know because they experience the problem, the solution so intimately. And so really getting to sit with community organizers and activists and leaders and policymakers and teachers and urban farmers in Chicago, particularly, it was where I started to really think indifferently and imagine an economy that looked very different. I had the chance to co-start and support a venture fund that we developed at the organization, the Delta Institute, to working to build out statewide initiatives to support green jobs. This was like Obama times here in the United States, where we thought green jobs were going to be the next industry. And unfortunately, we didn't see that fruition after 2008 housing collapse here. Instead, what I saw was all of these brilliant people creating solutions ready to take the money and just due to infrastructure and lack of resources and networks or budget fiduciary responsibilities that were required, these folks were not getting the money. These non-Indigenous, non-Black, non-Brown, non-queer, non-women, non-disabled-led organizations were the ones who got all the funds. And instead of really building the capacity of these people in these places, they were able to build their own and kind of left the people still in the same exact conditions. So it was just this sort of experience of all of that and my own inability to be told what to do and my no problem jumping headfirst into the darkness. I found myself back here in New Mexico where my community is from and where my family is close to with a 15 month old baby trying to figure out what I'm gonna do and nobody wanted to hire me because I don't have a traditional resume. Road Horse Consulting was born out of pure need, out of pure forcing the ends to come together. And I feel like as a woman, indigenous woman, and then as a mother, it was just something that I saw my mother's 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 do. And it wasn't foreign to be like, roll up your sleeves and just get it done. Whatever you gotta do, just get it done. That's what your charge is. Honestly, that ability for all those things to come together has just resulted in a moment in my life and time where I am here today now. Um, I have a staff of 10 full-time employees, benefits, salaries, co-founded a, a Native-led women's organization that serves Indigenous women to move into positions of leadership and power. 
co-founded a group called Zebras United, a global org focused on mutualistic business structures and cooperative models. And on top of that, I get to raise a nine-year-old who is really why I'm doing all of this for. So that's how I ended up here. It's a long, windy story that I can never yeah. tell. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I love it. And you mentioned a few of the projects, and I'm very <laughs> interested in whichever ones you'd love to share about, particularly being the co-founder of the Native Women's Lead and some of the really revolutionary work that you're doing there with the Matriarchal Revolution Fund, which mm-hmm. is the first of its kind. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So really the fund work that started for Native Women Lead came out of our work at Roanworks Consulting. Um, We started working locally in New Mexico with a credit union to develop a relationship-based or character-based lending initiative, which if anyone knows what that is, is we're just not using the five C's of credit to underwrite and determine the risk portfolio of these future borrowers. Uh, It was definitely a microfinance. And so in the co-creation of this initiative, we were able to bring it to Native Women Lead, particularly during the pandemic, and say, hey, maybe we can launch an initiative like this, which really started the vision for NWL to create a fund. Since then, Roan Horse Consulting, and I say that because we've really been the partner for NWL to create these capital strategies through all of the continued building of their funds. The Revolutionary Fund is a concept that myself and Jamie Gaucher, who used to be the co-director at NWL, is now the Managing Impact Investing Director at Common Future. Uh, We created, and we created it because we just know there's a missing gap, right? There's this traditional lending capital, then there's venture, and then everything in between isn't designed by us or for us. And more often what's happening is Indigenous people and women in particular are having to go to predatory lenders to just get some capital. We don't have friends and family around. Our friends and family around looks like our friends and family watching our kid, bringing food over, <laughs> letting us borrow their car. <laughs> it's not the $30,000, dollars $100,000 investments that you would normally be able to activate in a friends and family round. So the vision for the Revolutionary Fund was to create that in-between hybrid model. All of our work at Roan Horse Consulting has focused on the fact that this missing middle or this gap that we're talking about, there is so much space and opportunity for that to be filled by creative, innovative product design, whether it's revenue-based financing, blended financing, integrated capital, we can leverage these infrastructures and structures to actually move money that understands where those businesses are. And they're not just stuck in traditional bank lending, which is the most conservative, in some ways the most prohibitive, and historically the most traumatic for most communities of color to access. We've lost local banking as an institution. So all we have are these big banks that frankly don't have a relationship with people or place. Or we look at venture capital on the other end of the spectrum. And in 2021, Bay Holdings Group shared that 0.004% of all venture capital in 2021 went to Indigenous founders. 0.004%. And if we're looking at the current landscape, venture capital itself is constricting. And who's getting funding? It's not going to be the Indigenous woman founder who's building a tech solution. It's going to be, unfortunately, the guy from WeWork who also was able to raise a crap ton of another fund recently. So the idea here is if that's the kind of funding that's out there, 
we're not getting it. And then the traditional lending is not providing it. We definitely need to see more venture funds being developed and launched by Indigenous people. But when you look at the landscape, 99% of most entrepreneurs aren't ever going to activate venture. What are we creating and who are we creating it for? What we're creating is hopefully the kind of capital that's patient, long-term, and understands that the return on the investment doesn't need to be a 7 or 10x. A 1 or 2x is good enough. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of patience. I don't know how you want to edit all of that. Oh, that's but- fantastic. That's great. And it really dives into the mechanisms of why this is so necessary and what it looks like. And that's, I guess, my next curiosity is, can you give us some examples of some of these organisations or Indigenous female-led ventures and what it is that some of them are up to and what that looks like? Sure. Three years ago, when we really started thinking about what these non-microfinance innovative funds should look like. This was in 2019. Uh, In 2019, the only organization I knew that was even in the same space was out of Canada called Raven Indigenous Capital Partners. And it was Raven and Jamie and I wanting to build out the Revolutionary Fund. Outside of that, we met a lot of folks who were working in banking and or CDFIs, which are fantastic, Native-led, but they were still providing the same type of underwriting still using the same risk measures that traditional banks were using. So from 2019 to today, there might be now closer to 10 different funds being developed by Indigenous people across the range. Some of them are for pure venture capital investing for like, you know, large energy projects for renewable, for maybe mining and extraction. Like there's a lot more pure sort of venture funds that are being developed Then there's more creative, like impact investing funds, but they're still based on equity. Like Raven, there's like organizations like Skoden Ventures, Known Holdings particularly has an interest in supporting Indigenous people. Their stuff is continuing to build out. There's the Fireweed Institute that's probably going to have a fund. I mean, there is Change Labs Kinship Lending and their new funds will be announced soon. I mean, there was a drought in 2019. There was nothing there. And today what we're seeing is there are so many different or natives rising. There wasn't anything and today there is. And I'm so happy to say that through our bodies of work and really building this conversation here in the United States, I feel like we've really helped to support unlock that discussion as well as really pushing funders, investors to really reimagine what their return on the investment should look like and really think more critically about what does it mean to ask particularly Indigenous people in the United States to provide collateral when you look at the current numbers today, and this is my friend Jamie's favorite numbers, the current land that was stolen from Indigenous people in the United States is today worth $23 trillion dollars. To ask Indigenous people to continue to provide collateral is one of those moments where I'm like, we could systematically change the way we think about what it means to underwrite those most harmed and most stolen and taken from if we just really put it down on paper. Yeah. Wow. It's really exciting times. Like, it is. What are some of the challenges? And also, you mentioned a few of these already, the possibilities. I think one of the challenges is that I had already mentioned 
venture capital as a platform for increasing equity and access and wealth creation. Due to the current trend that we're in, I think it's going to be harder to raise venture capital funds. And in order to raise it, particularly just for Indigenous people, I think it's going to be even harder. And the reason is our population size, when you really look at the numbers, is small. And so talk about the needle within a needle haystack, but also the idea around the purpose of venture. My experience is that it's not that Indigenous or Native founders don't want venture, majority of them, that's not the right fit, but also this idea of giving up equity on a company, you know, there's still a lot of historical trauma. So I feel like between capital conditions that are unfolding today in the United States and how narrow it's going to get, particularly for different types of capital flows, is going to be really important for us to think about as we're creating these funds. The other is acknowledging that the trauma of money, the trauma of capital does play in how we make decisions and where and how we want to spend our money and time. And historically, (laughs) we've not been treated well by this system. So there is also, I think, a challenge or an opportunity really to be like, how do we understand that and unpackage that so that we can truly invest in Indigenous founders that understands their lived experience today, but also incorporates the historical relationship we've had. On the other side, I think there's so much opportunity with really playing with debt lending in a creative way. And I think that's where CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions, which is why they were created in the 90s anyways, was to be the alternative to the traditional lending system. Unfortunately, that didn't come to the full fruition, but I think we're in a moment today with some of the resources, particularly the federal government in the United States providing what's called SSBCI, which is the government underwriting, a good portion of financing for small businesses to create new funds that, again, are creative with debt and traditional debt lending. Like we're in a moment where we have the potential to reimagine the five C's of credit, to reimagine what it means to ask for collateral and who carries the risk. Mm. Is it the institution that has a $5 billion like balance sheet? Or is it the small borrower who's just trying to like get that extra like pickup truck so they can make more deliveries for their small business? Who should bear that risk? So I think that's the opportunity I see. And I really hope we as an industry and a collective are focusing on what's happening in between venture and traditional lending. This is the space and this is the opportunity we need to be living in. Absolutely. The emerging futures. Totally. A hundred percent. Yeah. Love it. Vanessa, to finish off, what are some books or resources that you would recommend to our listeners? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I got to look over at my bookshelf over there. (laughs) I think if there's a lot of really great books, I'm trying to think of one that I would say is a mandatory reader. Honestly, the most recent one that came out is Jessica Norwood's book. And she posits, imagine like a world in which the economy loved Black people. She's the one of the the founders of Runway out of Oakland and now is doing investing in the South, particularly I think in Alabama. 
but her book really talks about the realities of what we're facing today. Oh, it's Believe in You Money. So this is Jessica Norwood's book. It just came out literally a month or two ago. What would it look like if the economy loved Black people? And I think the reason I make that recommendation is she's coming from a place where she's had to invest millions of dollars into Black founders, Black and Brown founders in the Bay Area, in a community that has been highly gentrified. Yeah. And community members being pushed out due to that. Mm-hmm. And the work that they've done really is foundational and has set the ground for so many people to want to rethink how we do lending that's more thoughtful, patient, and equitable. And she shares her stories and her why. And it's just an uplifting book that really, I think, centers a, a living practitioner today who's doing this work in real time. Because so much of the stuff that's written about this is written from a non-Indigenous or non-Black person's perspective, but more importantly, a non-Indigenous woman or Black woman's perspective. I think that's the perspective we all need to be centering. You know what I mean? And so that's why I was struggling to find a book because I'm like, I've got a lot of great books on like venture capital. I've got great books on like alternative financing, but they're all written by white guys in academic situations. And I'm like, you know what? I want to promote a Black woman. I want to promote an Indigenous woman. I want to promote an Indigenous queer trans woman. You know what I mean? If I could find a book that is written by, that will be my book. Let's stay in touch. And when you find them, send them my way. I will. will. (laughs) Awesome to have you here today, Vanessa. Terrific to hear what you're up to. And it's very exciting times. I wish I had more time. I'm curious about you and your work and your podcast and like where you're going with all of this. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.